0: This episode contains descriptions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight, between science and the supernatural, between history and the horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown, and this is Pleasing Terrors. Episode 21. Hungry Spirits The oldest stories of the Wendigo originated in the distant past long before Europeans came to North America They told of a monster giant in size who moved on the wind stalk the forest, its stomach churning with an insatiable hunger that could never be sated. An all-consuming hunger for human flesh. Despite its vast size, it moved slowly and not all at once. It was hard to see, and great danger lay in the fact that it could be amongst the people before they were aware. That its passing, might only be recognized by the devastation that was left in its wake. The people of the First Nations in what would later become Canada and the United States and the Europeans with whom they would come in contact would learn that the Wendigo was not a titanic mythological creature, but was in fact a monster of many parts and many faces. They would learn in moments of fear and violence and death that the most terrifying faces were often those with which they were the most familiar. The Windigo was subtle, its actions hard to discern, until the madness set in, until it began to rend flesh from bone. The people looked to the faces of their neighbors, their friends, their family, and even themselves, and could only wonder the hungry spirits were already there. They could only wonder if it was already too late. How do you fight something that is so hard to see? How do you fight something that is so difficult to comprehend? Not an external force, vast and overpowering, but an internal corruption of the spirit and of the mind. The Wendigo was coming its movements slow but inevitable, and there was no escape. In the 1880s, while visiting the Hungry Hall outpost on the Rainy River in northwestern Ontario, an 18-year-old trader named Billy McGee witnessed a disturbing murder. He was there in the company of a band of Ashinaabe natives who had gathered at the outpost after fleeing their homes further up the river. They said that their village had been attacked by a wendigo. It started one morning when a child was discovered missing from his family's wigwam. A search was begun, and a horrifying discovery soon followed. There were pieces of the child scattered throughout the woods. They determined that he had been strangled, stripped of his clothing, and then torn to pieces. He had also been partially eaten. There was no sign of his clothing. A few nights later, it happened again. No matter what precautions they took, the children continued to be taken during the night, and their grisly remains discovered the next day always the clothing was missing. The inhabitants of the village fled to the Hungry Hall outpost, all of them except for an 80-year-old woman who refused to leave. Billy McGee was there the day she finally came down the river in a canoe. As she pulled up to the riverbank, her son-in-law walked down to greet her. When he got close, he could see that the canoe was filled with the clothing of all the children who had been killed. The woman stood up in the canoe and looked at her son-in-law. He looked into her eyes, pulled out his pistol, and shot her in the head. Those gathered there would later tell the shocked McGee that she was possessed by a Wendigo, and so she had to die. Dating back to the early days of contact between Native Americans and Europeans, there were reports of people being possessed by evil spirits. Hungry spirits that caused them to crave human flesh even when other food was available. Spirits that caused them to attack their friends and loved ones. Jesuit missionaries traveling amongst the native people in the 1600s often viewed these transformations as demonic possession. One night in 1636, a woman, her hands and feet bound, was carried into a shaking tent, a tent used to talk to spirits. A Jesuit missionary named Paul Lejeune was in attendance. The elders told him that the woman was a wendigo. As they began to question her, the tent began to shake violently the woman warned the elders against having contact with the French, saying that if they continued to do so, they would be consumed. According to Lejeune, the demon, or rather devilish woman, added that he had eaten tribes that live north of the river which is called the Three Rivers, and that he would eat a great many more if they did not leave. In June of 1661, Two Jesuit priests traveling to the Hudson Bay to establish missions learned that a group of native men who were expected to join them had died during the winter. They reported, these poor men were seized by a species of disease which affects their imaginations and causes them a more than canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children, and even upon men, being unable to appease or glut their appetite, ever seeking fresh prey, and the more greedily they eat, death is the sole remedy. It was thought that those living in remote areas were at the greatest risk of possession, and that their loved ones were at the greatest risk for the bloodbath that would inevitably follow. On February 13, 1741, Two women, suffering from starvation and exposure, arrived at Fort Churchill on the western shore of Hudson Bay in Manitoba. The Younger described how she and her mother had traveled over a hundred miles on foot through snow and ice. It had taken them sixteen days. When they fled their home, they had not had time to gather supplies. They had survived by eating the scraps of a deer left by a pack of wolves and by dissolving deer dung in water and drinking it. She said that when they fled their home, they hadn't left alone. Her family had consisted of her husband, a goose hunter for the Hudson Bay Company, their three children, and her mother. During the long winter, they had run out of food, and soon after, her youngest child had gone missing. Four days later, her 12-year-old son went missing as well. Eventually, she found what was left of them. Her husband had killed and eaten their two children, and all she had left was her daughter. One night while her husband slept, she fled along with her daughter and mother. Her husband awoke to discover that they were gone and began tracking them. He caught up with them three days later. Tried to grab the little girl from her mother's arm and began to strike the child in the head. Mother and grandmother fought to protect her, but the girl's body went limp and her mother realized that she was dead. He then tried to kill his wife. The two women managed to wrestle him to the ground and then his wife grabbed his axe and struck him in the head. She kept striking him again and again until finally, he was dead. They buried both the father and daughter in the snow and then continued on their way to the fort. The names of the two women were not recorded in the records of Fort Churchill and are now lost to history. They endured an unspeakable tragedy, and yet many of their contemporaries might have considered them fortunate to have escaped with their lives. Some families that fell victim to the Windigo were lost in their entirety. No one got out alive. Swift Runner was a trapper with the Hudson Bay Company who lived in central Alberta and traded in the country northeast of Fort Edmonton. He lived in a winter camp in a remote part of the wilderness with his wife, four children, and mother. In the spring of 1879, he returned from his camp without his family, which was something that he had never done before. His in-laws questioned him as to their whereabouts and grew suspicious when he couldn't provide a good explanation. They reported the situation to the Northwest Mounted Police, who questioned him. He told them that his wife had committed suicide and that the rest of the family had starved during the winter. Ominously, they noticed that Swift Runner did not appear to have starved. A small group of policemen escorted him back to his camp. There was a small grave there that Swift Runner told them belonged to his son. They dug up the body and found nothing to indicate that the boy had met with foul play. However, as they explored the area around the camp, they discovered that the ground was littered with human bones. It was then that Swiftrunner made his confession. He said that it had started with dreams, nightmares, in which the Windigo's spirit had come to him and begun to burrow into his thoughts until he could no longer tell his thoughts from those of the Wendigo, until he was the Wendigo and was consumed by the hunger for human flesh. He killed his wife first and then his mother. After he had eaten them, he forced one of his sons to kill and then dismember the other. He hung his baby from a lodge pole. In the end, he ate them all. When there was nothing left but their bones, he sucked the marrow until there was nothing left. The police gathered the evidence and brought Swift Runner to Fort Saskatchewan, where his trial began on August 8th of 1879. Evidence was presented and witnesses testified, and throughout the proceedings, Swift Runner sat in silence. When the prosecution rested, he offered no defense. His only statement was to say, I did it. He was executed on December 20th, 1879. The April 16, 1896 edition of the Edmonton Bulletin contained a report of the killing of a wendigo. At the end of January, a man named Napanin had set out with his wife and children to visit his father, who lived at Trout Lake, about 80 miles from Wapiska. A couple of days into their journey, he began to talk about strange animals that were trying to kill him. After reaching his father's house, His mental condition continued to deteriorate. He became violent. He was tied up to prevent him from hurting anyone. But he struggled against his restraints and, on one occasion, almost broke free. He was determined to be possessed by the Wendigo, and his family decided that he had to die before he could get loose and kill them. He was struck four times in the head with an axe until he was dead. His body was burned and a large tree was felled over his grave. Even so, the inhabitants of the village feared that he might return from the dead and slaughter them. Windigo were not always associated exclusively with cannibalism. They were also thought to be water spirits as well. While serving as a nurse with the Indian and Northern Health Services in the mid-20th century, Wilma Rayner often heard stories about the Windigo, but she did not believe them. She would have cause to reconsider her disbelief. She later recounted the incident to a Hudson Bay publication called The Beaver. While working in a Cree community near Lake Winnipeg, she was walking along the shore one morning when she saw a 19-year-old girl named Christina standing at the edge of the lake. She was staring at the water. Rainer looked, but she didn't see anything there. The girl screamed and ran into the nearest cabin. She pulled her mother outside and attempted to drag her to the lake, but her mother resisted. Rainer could see the girl pointing at the lake. Again, she looked, but she didn't see anything out of the ordinary. Soon the cabin was surrounded by people, and Rainer joined them. She later reported what she heard Christina say. This wendigo appeared to be a woman standing in the water up to her waist. She had long black hair hanging around her evil face and was beckoning the girl with a long, thin arm. The mother could see nothing in the water and had a hard struggle to draw the girl away. The story ultimately had a tragic ending. Months later, a young man who was dating Christina visited her before going ice skating on the lake. He fell through the ice, and despite a desperate effort to save him, was drowned. Rainer spoke to one of the men who attempted to save him. He said, Funny thing, I never seen a man drown like that one. And me, I see some drown many times in my life. We find the hole in the ice... Then we shine a light around the hole, and we see his head just under the ice, very close to that hole, like he was just standing there. It was only when she visited the lake the next day that Rainer realized that he had drowned on the exact spot where Christina had seen the windigo. Just as there were monsters preying upon the native population, there were those who hunted the monsters as well. The Sucker people were one of the last groups of indigenous people in Canada still living according to the traditions of their ancestors at the dawn of the 20th century. They lived on Deer Lake in northwestern Ontario. A man by the name of Zuwanu Gizigu Gabao, which translates to he who stands in the southern sky, was their shaman. He was known among the traders of the Hudson Bay Company for his ability to make and play fiddles. They called him Jack Fiddler. He used his magic to protect his people, and when his magic wasn't sufficient, he used other means. He was known for his ability to kill Wendigos. He did so not in some dramatic battle, but instead usually at the request of the family or sometimes even at the request of the person who believed themselves to be possessed. These people had not killed or eaten anyone. They were simply exhibiting some sign of physical or mental illness. He claimed to have killed 14 Wendigos. The belief in the Wendigo had undergone a horrifying evolution, so that by the beginning of the 20th century, Almost any form of illness could be interpreted as possession. In 1907, Jack Fiddler was arrested, along with his brother Joseph, by the Northwestern Mounted Police, but escaped before he could be put on trial. He committed suicide before he could be recaptured. His brother was convicted and sentenced to death, but the sentence was later overturned on appeal. Joseph died four days before he was supposed to be released from jail. As the 20th century progressed, belief in the Wendigo continued to evolve. It came to be classified as Wendigo psychosis, a mental disorder in which the affected person suffered depression and hallucinations that created a desire to eat human flesh. It was a psychological condition specific to the Great Lakes of Canada and the United States. It is proved as mysterious as the creature of myth that originated the story of the Wendigo and the spirit possessions that have darkened the pages of the historical record, because Wendigo psychosis has disappeared there are no known instances of it occurring within living memory. The oldest stories of the Wendigo, the stories that originated in the distant past, long before Europeans came to North America, were mythological stories of a giant creature, a monster that stalked the forest hunting men. It was a creature of flesh and blood, and with luck, it could be avoided. The hungry spirits which afflicted native people in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries were much more terrifying because they were not out there roaming in distant places. These spirits were in their homes and wore the faces of their loved ones. They looked like a father, or a mother, or a grandmother, but did not recognize love or loyalty, and they showed no mercy. And by the time they revealed their true face, it was often too late. It was hard to see, and great danger lay in the fact that it could be amongst the people before they were aware that its passing might only be recognized by the devastation that was left in its wake. However, The science and rationality of the 20th century suggest the most horrifying possibility of all. That there are no spirits invading our minds and turning us into monsters. That the hungry spirit is already inside of us, like some dark little egg pulsing to the beat of our heart, waiting for its moment to be born. And it is from the safe comfort of the 21st century that we can look back on the Wendigo and ponder the nature of its creation. We can examine the historical record, secure in the knowledge that whatever it was, it's gone now. And we can try to avoid asking the question, what if it returns? What if it does not confine itself to such a specific group of people? The Wendigo is a monster of many parts and many faces. Will we learn in moments of fear and violence and death that the most terrifying faces are often those with which we are most familiar? The indigo is subtle, its actions hard to discern, until the madness sets in, until it begins to rend flesh from bone. Will we look at the faces of our neighbors, our friends, our family, and even ourselves? and wonder if the hungry spirits are already here. Well, we wonder if it's already too late. This episode of the Pleasing Terrors podcast was written by Mike Brown. It was recorded, edited, and mixed by Eric Stair at Charleston Sound Studio. If you would like to support the show, please rate and review Pleasing Terrors on iTunes, Your review will make it easier for others to find us. For more creepy news, history, and folklore, or for information on upcoming episodes, please visit us at Pleasing Terrors on Facebook and Twitter, and at PleasingTerrors.com. Thank you for listening.